I want to begin by pointing you to the Westminster Confession of Faith, which chapter 22 talks about of lawful oaths and vows. So oaths and vows are part of the religious worship of God. They shouldn't be taken lightly. They shouldn't be done for any occasion. They should be done carefully, and they should be done with consideration of the weightiness of such a matter. In, a, in an oath, you are, an oath is the broader term. Okay, so think about the word oath as being like the word rectangle. Okay? Think about vows as being squares. Okay? So oaths are the broader category in which vows are a subset. So oaths are swearing in the sight of God. You're calling on God's name for him to witness what you're asserting or what you're promising. And you're asking God to judge the truth of what you are swearing. Now, calling upon God to judge the truth of what you are swearing is asking him to bless the truth and to curse falsehood. Vowing is taking an oath, but it's a promissory oath, right? So you're, you're not just saying this is true, you're promising to perform something. And a vow is a, not only a promissory oath, but it's a promissory oath directly to God. So you are swearing to God to do something. Now, when you take an oath, it is very important to consider it as a serious thing your own understanding of the oath, your own willingness, resolution to perform the oath. You can only take an oath to do something that God has commanded or that is a lawful means to bring about something that God has commanded. So it's important to recognize that oaths to sin are not valid. They are null at the moment of making them. They are not oaths. When you consider an oath, it's important that you not take it with an intention of deception. Oaths ought to be interpreted in the plain and common sense of the words. Now, when we think about words, words have multiple meanings. And so the context helps us to understand which meaning is given. And so what we do is we need to realize we are not papists, which means it is not some man somewhere that his secret intention upon writing the oath has some sort of interpretive authority. It has no authority. It does not matter what he meant when he wrote it. It does not matter. We are used to hearing judges talk about original intent of the Constitution, and they talk about things like, what did the founders intend? It does not matter what the author intended. Their secret intention has as much bearing as my secret intention. It has no bearing. What matters is the reading of the words, as they would commonly be understood, given the grammar, and the broader context, and avoiding incoherence when reading the system. Those are the principles of interpretation. 
And so the secret intention of a person, whether the person writing or the person taking the oath, does not affect whether or not the oath is applied in that way. What is applied is the plain meaning of the words. Now they have to be understood in the context. But the context is not an infinite number of facts. The context is the document. And if there's a relationship of other documents, then those things are to be used. Context does not mean everything around, because we don't gain knowledge from our experience of everything around. Not everybody picks up everything that's going on around. It's the documents. So covenanting is to be understood. When you read the documents, you understand them in the plain and common sense of the words. Now, a vow, we talked about this, is to God. Any oath is in the name of God. We talked about what lawful oaths are versus unlawful oaths. Now, the first covenant thing that's going to occur is going to be regarding the Lord's Supper coming to communicate membership. I will be teaching on the Lord's Supper tonight before the administration of the Lord's Supper. And so I will not be teaching on it at this time, though ordinarily during a communicant covenanting, I would teach on that subject. So I think you understand giving baptism. I need to move to baptism and understand the meaning of the covenant. We'll talk about more. But in the very simple sense, let me explain this. The Lord's Supper is a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. It is not the Lord's body and blood in a literal sense. It is not transformed. It is not present with, under, or in. Right? The Lord's Supper is a sign. It's a symbol of the covenant. And so we take it to renew covenant. So let's move into covenanted duties that exist in our church covenant. I've had several meetings with the Roberts family to talk about the meaning of the covenant. Last night, we spent several hours talking about the doctrine of the Incarnation and the Trinity to make sure that there was a firm understanding there. So my, my effort as an administrator of this covenant has been very serious in an endeavor to understand through conversation that the covenant is understood. And so we think about that. The Roberts family itself has taken seriously this covenanting as well. Spent months in consideration on the matter. And so this is an effort one more time before the administering of the oath for consideration by the Roberts household and for all who are present as witnesses for it and for those who are church members already thinking about the way in which the admission of another household has duties that bind us. So the first vow is a vow relating to epistemology. It's acknowledging God's word as truth. So we think about scripture and the necessary inferences of those explicit statements. That is the truth of God. It's the whole counsel of God revealed to man. So, Scripture, we're not talking about marks on a page. We are talking about the propositions, the judgments that exist in the mind of God that are revealed. So, the explicit statements and the necessary inferences. The Scriptures are the mind of Christ. They are living and active. The words on a page are signs. The meanings of the words are communicated to our minds. They are illuminated to us by the Holy Spirit. They can be translated into different languages. Each language is a set of signs that communicates the word, communicates the logos. 
Scripture is the only rule of faith. We cannot invent doctrine. The teaching that is from this pulpit or from any home or from any individual ought to be judged by the Scriptures. They're the rule of life. Scripture is sufficient to know what is good. And anybody who commands you to do anything other than what Scripture says or what it authorizes them to command is usurping authority. Vow 2. The Shorter Catechism is a great summary, an excellent summary of the key truths of Scripture, and we use it as a fencing mechanism for coming to the Lord's table. Studying the Shorter Catechism allows for a short way for somebody to consider what we are saying the Scriptures teach and allows for us to rely upon the work of the church in the past to gather and systematize these things. It has been the common practice of the English-speaking Reformed churches to use a shorter catechism for the training up of children and adults who come to the faith and need basic instruction. And that is used to help people to quickly come to a place where they can covenant and then be under the government of the church and make it so that they can grow from there with the benefits of hedging by the church. Shorter Catechism has three major sections. The first section is the first 38 questions. It teaches the purpose of life, how to know truth, the knowledge of God, creation, and providence. Section 2, questions 39 to 81, teaches us the law of God, broken into the two great commandments and the Ten Commandments, and helps us to understand our duty to each other and to understand that church discipline will be applied using the law of God as a standard. Section 3 has 82 to 107. It has a section immediately following the law that talks about the recognition of our guilt in the law, that we're all breakers of it. And so it talks about what saving faith is and what repentance unto life is. It talks about the word of God and its proper uses, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. It tells us how to pray. It uses the Lord's Prayer as an organizing principle for how to pray. Vow 3 deals with the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is one in essence and three in persons. Vow 4 talks about the incarnation and the two natures of Christ, that he is truly God, he is truly man, and that there is a union so that though everything that is necessary for a person, a divine person, is there, and everything that is necessary for a human person is there, there is a legal union a hypostatic union, a personal union, so that there is one Christ. So that the actions of the humanity are counted to the divinity. So that we can say that the blood of God was spilled for us. Vow 5 is on the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. We've spent an enormous amount of time on this in the book of Romans. And so I will spend less time on this than I normally would. I would normally emphasize this as a significant piece in the covenanting. But we have been talking about this at length. And so let me simply remind you that this vow talks about the fact that we have to recognize our guilt under the law of God. That our guilt is based upon Adam's sin in our place. The corruption of our nature so that we are born and even conceived without faith. And therefore we are from the very moment of conception in unbelief and sinning against God. 
And all of our sins after that proceed from that unbelief, that corrupt nature, where we commit actual particular sins. And so when we realize that guilt, our guilt of unbelief at the root of all of our other sins, and the guilt of Adam, which is counted to us, when we see all of that, we see we are guilty indeed. And so we need the grace of God, and so we think about the fact that we needed salvation by the work of Christ to pay for our sins as a satisfaction, full, complete satisfaction. He provides us with righteousness so that we have standings that we're counted as just, not just innocent. And so, we are now saved in a position where, out of gratitude, we should live a life to the glory of God. So, vow six is that vow to glorify God through good works out of gratitude for grace that has already been given. And it breaks it into three major categories seeking of the knowledge of the truth, acting according to the knowledge of the truth, and spreading the knowledge of the truth. Vow eight, sorry, vow seven is about seeking the knowledge of the truth. And so we have explicit statement in our vows about certain means that God has appointed. Daily private worship, daily household worship, the Lord's Day, the sacraments, and the call to assemble for worship and government. These things are appointed by God. And so the things that in our own culture that are commonly objected to are daily worship of the individual, the household, and also the Lord's Day, which I have taught on in the past and do not have time to go into extensively now, but I want to simply lay before you the fact that the Lord's Prayer plainly says that we are to pray every day for our daily bread. And so if that prayer is occurring daily, then we also need to consider the fact that it has this idea of praying with others daily. Give us this day our daily bread. And furthermore, we are told that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so bread is less important than the spiritual bread. And that by itself should plainly, in a common text, that all are aware of, make this duty clear. The Lord's Day, we have the fourth commandment. It was given at creation. It's given in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. It's given in the restatement of the law in Deuteronomy. The reason associated with creation, and furthermore after that, the idea of being redeemed out of slavery. Both reasons are tied to the keeping of the Sabbath. And when our great Savior and King redeemed us out of thraldom to Satan, out of the world, that event was greater than pulling Israel out of Egypt. Satan was a more terrifying enemy than Pharaoh. And so that redemption that we have being pulled out of that slavery is a greater event than what is commemorated in Deuteronomy and the redemption of slaves from Pharaoh. That event was prophesied we were told in the Psalms that there is a day of the Lord that would come that that was the day of the resurrection the apostle Peter interprets that text in that way and expresses that the Lord's day is the day when Christ is resurrected <coughs> and so we know given the apostolic example both in the book of Acts and also at the end of the Gospels, and also 
in 1 Corinthians, the fact that we are told that there was to be a laying aside of money on the first day of the week, which was done during the assembly of the saints, so as to avoid a need for a collection when the Apostle Paul arrived in Corinth, that these things together make plain that the day of convocation, the day of assembly, which has always been the Sabbath, is now on a Sabbath at the first day of the week. There are many other texts to pull together for that, but again, those are some of the simple ways of trying to pull together and show that this is a lawful oath, a lawful vow. Vow 8, acting according to the knowledge of the truth. This involves keeping the law. We have the great commandment to love God, and to love neighbor. That is broken up for us with the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments teach us how to love God. The last six teach us how to love neighbor. And so this is a swearing to do what the law commands. I have laid out there some of the ways of considering the law and thinking about it in terms of the kinds of questions that they answer. The first commandment is about what is good. God is the good. The second commandment is what are the means to get what's good? Well, not idols. The means that God has appointed. We know God not by lying images, but by the word of truth. And so we are to use what God has appointed in his worship. We gain God by gaining the knowledge of God. So how should we use these means? Not in vain, not hypocritically, but with integrity. We are to do this in a time order that God has given. He has given us six days for our ordinary work, which has morning and evening worship. And we have another day, a one in seven, a seventh day, that is for the purpose of devoting the whole time for the knowledge of God. And the public assembly is to that end. In loving our neighbor... We are to realize that we need lawful authority to divide labor. The division of labor is what authority is largely about. Think about the ants. The ants, without officers, are able to work together. We, in our fallen state, we need officers for the purpose of this organization, in the household, in the church, in the state. And so, time is, sorry, so authority is divided up by the law of God And so we are to give our obedience to lawful authorities when they give lawful commands, and we are to reject usurpers, and rebels ought to be punished. How do we maintain peace when working for such high-value things? Well, we don't murder each other. We don't seek strife. We don't seek to strike each other. We seek to... Avoid violence except in the just use of violence for self-defense, for the punishment of crimes, and the waging of just warfare. And so the restraint of self, the control of anger, the control of temper is necessary for us to be able to work together for the glory of God. The enjoyment of pleasures must be moderated. Sexual pleasure has been a source of much corruption, and so... The idea that the seventh commandment teaches us the proper place for sexual pleasure, which is in marriage between one man and one woman. We are to avoid the misuse of pleasure, the excess of them, the failure to enjoy things that are lawful that God has given to us. We are to enjoy those things in a lawful way. The Eighth Commandment teaches us about property and the division of property, which is for the purpose of work. Hoarding is condemned. Investing is commended. Giving is commended. Putting things to work, using them 
for the blessing of the people of God, for the honoring of God. This is what we are told to do. You shall not steal. Private property is the established order of God. And so socialism is forbidden. And so we think about what we have as the private property order and how it, when it is acknowledged in societies, brings great blessing. And so we are to work hard. So you as a household, Robert's house, are called in that commandment to work hard, to build up an estate, and to be able to pass on wealth to your children and your children's children. The Ninth Commandment requires us to care about reputation and truth-telling. So how should reputation and honor be given in the process of working together? We should seek to advance the reputation of ourselves and our neighbor to the glory of God in a truthful way, except when truth-telling must be done for the harm of reputation, for the glory of God, protecting our own rights, or the good of our neighbor. False witnesses must be punished. Truth-telling must often be done at great expense to ourselves. And truth-telling is powerful to transform the world. The Tenth Commandment. How, what attitude are we supposed to have? How are we supposed to think about the way in which all these good things are distributed? We're to be content with what the Lord has given to us. And to be joyful for the good of our neighbor. And to be sad at the loss that our neighbor maintains. This is explained further in the Shorter Catechism, again in questions 39 to 81, and excellently in the Larger Catechism in more detail. So vow 9 is about spreading the knowledge of the truth. So it's an obligation to learn how to evangelize, to engage in it personally. It's about supporting evangelism in terms of helping others in that work. Engaging in discipleship as you teach in your own household the whole counsel of God and learn to teach other people outside of your household using hospitality to that end, to support that discipleship by supporting others, providing a Christian education to your children as a part of that, tithing to the church to finance and support this evangelism and discipleship, and cooperating, working with others, taking your talents to do work together so we can fill the earth with the knowledge of God in a way of depth and breadth. Vow 10. Vow 10 is about the notes or marks of the church, church authority, biblical conflict resolution, peace, purity, and unity in the truth. You are obligated to understand the notes of the church. All of you should judge your church to see if it has doctrine according to Scripture alone, to see if it has worship according to Scripture alone, and to see if its government operates according to Scripture alone. And when public actions are taken that are contrary to these things, it is your obligation to object. If repentance does not follow, it is your obligation to separate. If lawful authority is exercised, it is your duty to submit. This is a weighty matter on both sides. Those who teach will have a greater judgment. Now, this type of attitude can lead to a fractiousness, the splintering of things that ought to be maintained whole. And so this is conjoined with a promise to go through biblical conflict resolution which implies on the side of the church the obligation of provision of forum. Those who engage in conflict resolution must seek to do so honestly, think about the ninth commandment, with integrity, think about the third commandment. Forum must be provided. If you have some sort of 
conflict to bring up. If it's a private sin, go privately first. If it's in front of some other people, do it on the spot. If it's resolved in private later on, the people who were present originally should be informed of the resolution. If it was a public matter, it should be confronted publicly, which is why you have the opportunity to object after I teach. Because if I teach wrongly, you should object publicly so that that truth can be taught and the error can be corrected. If there is an act of worship or church government that is publicly done, repentance looks like public repentance. It is the obligation of the church to provide an opportunity for a just defense or to defend itself publicly when falsely charged. Matthew 18 tells us how to escalate from private to witnesses to public. Things start at the level they started at. Also, criminal sins should be dealt with publicly from the beginning. In order to have the right attitude, we must work for the glory of God with zeal. Because I'll tell you what, conflict resolution is awful. It's awful. Strife is horrific. The stress it brings, the time it consumes. You have to have zeal to be willing to work through that. You have to know it's true, and then you have to see that doing what is commanded is worth doing. And so only if you see the church as valuable and see the work of the church as valuable and the need to work together as valuable and the idea that covenanting is an institution of God, would anybody lock themselves into this suicide pact? Right? That's what it feels like. Conflict resolution feels like a suicide pact. It's like a promise to go down with the ship. No, it's not. Because when the other person refuses, you should separate. Give at least two times walking through the things in detail. Making sure that it's clear the other side has heard you out, that you've tried your best to see that they understand. Do that at least two times. It's not two meetings, it's two times going through. And the third time, if there's no higher appeal, the third time, you're obligated to separate if there's no repentance. Because the Lord Jesus Christ has not made it a suicide pact. He's not commanded us to waste our lives in fruitless conflict. But even two to three times feels like death. We are an age that focuses on the therapeutic and focuses on relationship. And so we have been trained from our births to feel that what matters is relationship and what matters is how we feel. So conflict resolution is the thing that is the scariest thing. So we have to work with zeal for peace. Not a false peace, a peace that is rooted in truth and purity. We have to work for purity. Not that we can eradicate every sin, every false belief that every person around us has, but in the sense that the outward actions that are done in the public worship, in the public government, that we remove those things that are wrong. Now, sometimes there's lots of things wrong, and somebody learns a lot faster than everybody else. And so you pick which thing is the most basic, the most important. You start there and work through it. When that's resolved, you move to the next one. You might feel like, is this a trap? Because 
we have to work through problems for the rest of our lives. It seems like there's just going to be one problem after another. That is right. That is the Christian life. You are engaged in an agonizing spiritual warfare, and it is your job to fight until you die. And when you die, your children ought to keep fighting after you until the Lord Jesus Christ comes. There is no end but death or the return of Christ. And that is the good life. The alternative is you just give in. You just surrender. You go back to slavery, to sin, to the devil. right? You just conform to the world. That is soul-crushing. It is meaningless. It is boring. This spiritual warfare is the glorious life. And the way you enlist in the army of the Lord Jesus Christ is to swear obedience to the king. Covenanting is a beautiful and glorious thing, and it is the way that you go under the banner of that king and enter into battle. Baptism is an emblem of that glorious covenant. It is a marker. It is a badge that shows that you are a member of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that marker separates you from the world and the legions of the devil. And there are legions. We will overcome the world. We will overcome the devil. This is the good life. This obligation of conflict resolution is for the sake of maintaining the kingdom without fracture. And both sides must seek to obtain peace, to have purity. And they can only do that through seeking to have unity in the truth, which requires much discussion. There must be prolonged willingness to discuss and to go through it to the end at least two times, but no more than three. That could be a dozen meetings for each time. Whatever that takes to deal with making things clear. Now, you who are witnessing this covenant, if you witness a covenant, you are responsible to be willing to hold the parties accountable for keeping covenant according to your station. If you don't want that responsibility, now's your chance to leave. I'll count to five. If you stay, you are, by your silent assent and continued presence, willing to hold the church and this household accountable to keep its covenant. Now, there will be baptisms today. Baptism is a badge. It's a symbol. It's a marker of the covenant of grace. All the duties that are contained in it, all the blessings, all the work of Christ is emblemized there. It's an outward sign. Water with the pronouncing of the name of God, Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Now, it can be given to adults who make profession, and also to anyone who is a part of the household when either the man of the house or the woman of the house make profession. It is a great sin to neglect baptism when it ought to be given. We are not to unduly delay baptism. 
We need to realize that baptism is not a guarantee of being regenerated or saved. And at the same time, even though it is a great duty to be baptized, and we are commanded to do so quickly, people can be saved apart from baptism. Baptism should only be administered once. It's important to consider whether a baptism is valid or not. It is the entry right. The Lord's Supper is the re-covenanting right. So sometimes we are used to thinking, you know, I'm not sure if I was really saved, and so I'm going to get baptized again because I really want to mean it this time. No, 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 no. The Lord's Supper is for that recommitting. Don't make baptism into the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is the Lord's Supper. Baptism is baptism. They are distinct things. One is the entry rite, and the other one is the recovenanting. If somebody does not believe at the moment of baptism, the Lord can still use it as a blessing if they believe later. And in fact, if they believe later, he has used it as a blessing. If you are baptized and you do not believe, and you never believe, and you die in unbelief, that baptism brings greater judgment on your head. It is a covenant sign. It comes with greater blessing and greater cursing. It is covenanting. It is a sign. It's a visible word. It's an act of covenanting. Why have all these verbal covenants? Why, why speak these things? To make more plain the meaning. To increase responsibility. To increase understanding. So in the baptismal covenant, there's content that overlaps dramatically with the content of the church covenant that we just talked through. So in short version, there's a promise from the parents to guard, provide, disciple, and discipline the children. There's a, a promise to teach the scriptures, to recognize that the knowledge of the truth comes from divine revelation, that we need to deal with the explicit text of scripture and the laws of logic, seeing the systematic whole. The third vow is about the parents agreeing that what the church professes is true. Not that anything I ever say or anything any officer ever says is true, but that what has been published now, that has been read, is what the scriptures teach. And so there's an agreement to teach together the same truth to the children. They raise the children up to be able to covenant and to communicate membership. Vow 4 is about teaching the children to seek the knowledge of the truth regarding the means that were laid out in that vow for communicant membership. Vow 5 is about teaching the children to act according to the knowledge of the truth by learning the law, teaching them the law, and to apply it. Vow 6 is about teaching the child to spread the knowledge of the truth using the means that God has appointed. And vow 7 is about teaching the child to deal with authority and conflict resolution according to the Bible. Hopefully that sounds like what you just heard. Now, the church also has promises to the child. The church promises to help the parents and the children to keep covenant. The church promises and vow to, if, for example, Mr. Roberts were to pass away, it would be the church's obligation to provide for his orphans and widows. Vow three, the church promises to hold the parents accountable using church discipline if necessary so that they will not neglect the duties they have to their children. 
That's all. I would like to call forward the Roberts household first for Mr. and Mrs. Roberts to uh, enter into communicant membership by covenant. And then we will follow that with the administration of the baptismal covenant. So, Robert's household, please come forward. Mr. Nye and Mr. Cordova, well, so now you have a child with you, so maybe it would be easier for somebody else. I'll, I'll sign as a second witness. Okay, Mr. Cordova, if you could please sign as a, as a witness on, on these covenant documents. Okay. Mr. Justin Roberts, this is Amy Roberts, please raise your right hand. I'm going to read the vow, and at the end of the vow, I'm asking you to say I do you agree to the vow so vow one do you believe all the statements and necessary inferences of the scriptures of the old and new testaments to be the rationally coherent and infallible word of god the very truth itself and the only rule of, for faith and life I do. I do vow two do you believe that the westminster shorter catechism is a faithful summary of the basic doctrines of scripture i do, I do. Do you believe that the one living and true God is a spirit who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, and that this one God is three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that these three persons are one God, the same in being, in agreement in all things, and equal in power and glory? I do. I do. Do you believe that the only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who, being the eternal Son of God, became man, and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct beings, two distinct minds, and yet one Christ forever, and that Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and born of her, yet without sin. I do. I do. Vow 5. Do you believe that you are guilty and helpless as a sinner against God? Repent of your sin and believe that God, by grace alone, has pardoned all of your sins and accepted you as righteous in His sight, only because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to you and received by belief alone. I do. I do. Vow 6. Do you believe that because God is the Lord, your God, and your Redeemer, having saved you from your sin, by grace alone, through faith alone, in the mediatorial work of Christ alone, that the only reasonable response to God's authority and mercy is to live your life as an acceptable sacrifice to God, seeking to glorify Him in the whole of life by knowing the truth, acting according to the knowledge of the truth, and spreading the knowledge of the truth, all out of gratitude for the grace of God given to you. I do. Do you promise to glorify God by seeking the knowledge of the truth for yourself and for your household by diligently engaging in private worship and household worship, both of which should be daily and should ordinarily include partaking of the scriptures, prayer, and the singing of psalms, keeping the Lord's Day, observing the appointed sacraments, and attending to the call of the church to gather for the worship of God and for the government of the church. I do. I do. 
Vow 8. Do you promise to glorify God by seeking to act according to the knowledge of the truth, as revealed in the moral law, which is the whole duty that God requires of man, is summarized by the two great commandments, is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments, and is explained accurately in the Westminster Shorter Catechism? I do. Vow 9. Do you promise to glorify God by seeking to spread the knowledge of the truth, by engaging in and supporting evangelism and discipleship in the whole counsel of God, providing a Christian education for your household, tithing to the church, and cooperating with others in the church in order to fill the earth with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea? I do. About 10. Do you promise to carefully examine the doctrine, worship, and government of this church according to Scripture alone? to determine whether these marks of the church are being kept pure and entire, to submit under the government of this church in all lawful exercises of church authority, and to refuse submission unto all unlawful exercises of church authority, to follow the biblical requirements of conflict resolution prior to separation from this body, as summarized authoritatively in Matthew 18 and Acts 15, and subordinately in the constitution of the scripturalist church, and to work in the church with zeal and knowledge for peace, purity, and unity in the truth. I do. And it's my great joy to extend to you the right hand of fellowship and welcome you as members. So, the signing of the covenant is also done to commemorate important, doc, important agreements ought to be captured in writing because even Christians can remember inaccurately. And so, here now, is the covenant. You will have a copy for yourselves, and the church will also keep a copy. All right. So now we have the children. So I will begin with the promises of the parents, and the same thing you'll be saying I do. And I will then read what the promises of the church are. And these are restatements of our promises. So, please raise your right hand. So, I'm sorry, forgive me. First, Mr. Roberts, can you present the, the children for me uh, who are to be baptized this day? So, what are their names? Carly Mae Brandenburger. Hunter John Brandenburger. Hazel Elise Roberts. Now, in regards to these three children, please raise your right hand. Do you promise to diligently guard these children, both body and soul, with your own life, and to diligently disciple and discipline these children, not provoking them to wrath, but nourishing them in the instruction and admonition of the Lord, by providing a godly example in the whole of life, truthful teaching in the full counsel of God, and just correction as the occasion is fitting, storing up the words of Scripture in your heart so that you may teach them to your children and talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. I do. I do. Vow two. Do you believe and promise to diligently teach these children that all of the statements and necessary inferences of the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are the rationally coherent 
and infallible word of God, the very truth itself, and the only rule for faith in life. I do. I do. Now three, do you believe and promise to diligently teach these children that the contents of the Scripturalist Church Covenant are accurate representations of the teaching of Scripture and to demonstrate the same by careful discipleship in the Word of God? I, I do. do. Now four, do you promise to diligently teach these children to seek the knowledge of the truth to the glory of God by both explaining and, and exemplifying the need to engage in both private worship and household worship, keep the Lord's Day, observe the appointed sacraments, and attend to the call of the church to gather for the worship of God and for the government of the church. I do. I do. About five. Do you promise to diligently teach these children to act according to the knowledge of the truth to the glory of God, as revealed in the moral law, which is the whole duty that God requires of man, is summarized by the two great commandments, is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments and is explained accurately in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I do. I do. Vow six, do you promise to diligently teach these children to spread the knowledge of the truth to the glory of God by both, by both explaining and exemplifying the need to engage in and support evangelism and discipleship in the whole counsel of God provide a Christian education for your household and for these children, tithe to the church, and cooperate with others in the church in order to fill the earth with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I do. And last, vow seven, do you promise to protect your household and these children from all false doctrine, all false worship, and all false or usurping human authority, and to teach these children to carefully examine the doctrine, worship, and government of the church according to scripture alone, to determine whether these marks of the church are being kept pure and entire, to submit unto the government of the church in all lawful exercises of church authority, and to refuse submission unto all unlawful exercises of church authority, to follow the biblical requirements of conflict resolution prior to separation from this body, as summarized authoritatively in Matthew 18 and Acts 15, and subordinately in the constitution of the scripturalist church, and to work in the church with zeal and knowledge for peace, purity, and unity in the truth. I do. I do. Then, the promises of the church, you may lower your hands. We, the church, are promising to fulfill our duties to these children of seeking to support the lawful authority and duties of the father and mother by encouraging covenant keeping and submission unto Christ by the members of the household, by providing training and accountability for the parents in teaching godliness through household discipline and discipleship, household worship and private worship, by teaching in the public worship of the church and imposing external discipline on the household to assemble, by protecting these children from the sin of the parents through application and teaching of the scriptures and the diligent use of correction and of church censures as circumstances require. Secondly, we as a church promise that if these children should be without father, then we will joyfully provide the orphan children and the widow with shelter to prevent homelessness, clothing to avoid nakedness, food to stop hunger, and drink to satisfy thirst. Means and assistance to combat ignorance and unbelief under the oversight of our elders and deacons, 
to the end that these children would think, speak, and act in such a manner as to bring honor to the name of Christ, including a Christian education, and to protect them from false teachers and anti-Christian institutions until these children are adults or catechized and able to interact as, a mature believer, as mature believers, being ready and able to come to the Lord's table and to defend the truth against error. Third promise, final promise. We promise that if the parents of these children are negligent in the performance of their duties, and we will correct, exhort, and assist in the bearing of their duties. But if the parents of these children are found obstinate in their refusal to perform their duties, then we will proceed with the censures of the church against them in the hope that the public use of the spiritual sword will reclaim and gain the offending brethren, deter others from like offenses, purge out dangerous leaven, which might otherwise infect the whole lump, vindicate the honor of Christ, the, whole profession, the holy profession of the gospel, and prevent the wrath or discipline of God from justly falling upon the visible church if we should suffer his covenant and the seals thereof to be profaned by notorious and obstinate offenders. Now, proceed to baptism. Mr. Roberts, please present Hunter John Brandenburger. Right, so let's pray. Father, we thank you you have not left us strangers, but you have given us the sign of the covenant. You brought us into your household with the privileges of your ordinances. We ask that you would sanctify and bless this ordinance of baptism. You would join the outward baptism with the inward baptism of your spirit. We ask that you would make this baptism to Hunter, Harley, and Hazel the seal of adoption, remission of sin, regeneration, and eternal life and all the other promises of the covenant of grace. We ask that these children will be planted into the likeness of the death and resurrection of Christ, and that the body of sin being destroyed in them, they may serve God in newness of life all their days. Hunter John Brandenburger, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Carly May Brandenburger, come forward. Baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Hazel Elise Roberts, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this baptism. We ask that you bless these children. Robert's house. Thank you for the public covenanting that has occurred. I ask that you help all of us to keep covenant. And we thank you that though we are breakers of the covenant, though we are sinners, that you have sent Jesus Christ to keep the covenant perfectly for us in our place and in our stead. So we look to him knowing that we have remission by his blood and that we have righteousness by his perfect obedience. And we ask that you bring glory to your name by bringing great blessing on this household on this church. Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Please stand and open your Psalters to Psalm 128. Psalm 128, a song of ascents. Bless the man that fears the Lord, that walks in all his ways. You will eat of your hand's labor. With joy you'll receive the good. As a vine grow near your house, so your wife will be fruitful, and your children round your table, plentiful as olive plants. 
Lo, on him that fears the Lord will these blessings be bestowed. For truly the Lord will send you his blessing out of Zion. In Jerusalem you'll see the good of her all your life. You will see your children's children and peace upon Israel. The covenant that we have just engaged in is meant to see these effects brought to pass. Mr. Roberts, by entering into covenant, you are acting in such a way as to seek to bring blessing on yourself and on your home. And so, in continuing to do so, the hope is that in washing your wife with the word, you will see her bear much fruit, and in the washing of the children and the raising of the children, giving them the word, discipling them daily, that you will find that they bear fruit around your table, and that there is a joyous blessing on your home. And so this promise is fulfilled by Christ for us, and it is a promise that we look forward to and seek to see blessing in each of our homes. And so we sing this psalm together now with joy. Bless the man that fears the Lord and that walks in all his ways. You will eat of your hands labor, with joy you'll receive the good. As a vine grown near your home, so your wife will be fruitful, and your children round your table plentiful as olive plants. Lo, on him that fears the Lord will these blessings be bestowed. For truly the Lord will send you his blessing out of Zion. In Jerusalem you'll see the good of her all your life. You will see your children's children and peace upon Israel. Lord, bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. Lord, lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.